Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My amazing sponsors for season two of One for the Road are Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. Boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear, you don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all Rock Sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drink. My guest today lost her dad, Steve, to alcoholism in 2017 at the tender age of 59 years old. Since then, she has worked tirelessly to raise awareness surrounding the stigma of alcoholism. She is the founder of the charity Warrior Kind, which helps fund treatments for people struggling with their own mental health. It gives me such pleasure to introduce this week's guest on One for the Road, the lovely Sarah Drage. So hi Sarah, welcome to my podcast One for the Road today. I'm really grateful that you uh, agreed to do this with me. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, and thank you for having me. It's um, it's an honour to be invited onto your show. Amazing. I'd like to let the listeners know how I came across you, and uh, it was your amazing TED Talk talking about your lovely dad, Steve, who sadly died in 2017, and you talked about raising awareness of the stigma of alcoholism. Uh, firstly I'm really sorry to hear about Steve he sounds like a wonderful man thank you thanks and I generally would love to go right back to the beginning actually and if you could tell me about what it was like growing up with your dad yeah of course so um I was incredibly close with my dad um I was his eldest I was the first of three daughters um and I would go everywhere with him so he was a builder by trade. He used to build a lot of property. And I would be the one that he takes the building sites with my little yellow hat on. I'd be sitting on his JCB diggers with him. I'd be, he just took me everywhere. I think I spent a lot of my younger years up to the age of seven with my dad glued to his hip. He was a very, he was an amazing role model. He was very, looking back on it, I would say my dad was very open-minded before his time. So when, when I say that, I mean, he instilled independence in all three of us girls. He instilled resilience and strength and made a point that we shouldn't be dependent or reliant on any man 
and that we could do things ourselves like the little things he'd say to me growing up like if I was being dramatic about something he'd say woman up instead of man up and I used I look back at that and I think that's brilliant like he used to say that to me in the 90s and the noughties I mean that that was way before his time he was just a remarkable open-minded sensitive he was a sensitive soul and he was loving incredibly loving like every single day he would tell us he loved us and that he wanted the best for us so I think that confidence I have within myself which I think is one of my strongest traits is because of him And I actually said that to him at the end. I thanked him for that. And I thanked him for instilling that independence and that confidence within me. So, yeah, I would say growing up with him was just amazing at the the beginning. And then entering the teenage years, I mean, he went through something incredibly traumatic. I have to be careful what I say, but it was a matter of life or death traumatic. And we ended up moving to France because of it. And that's when I noticed a change in my dad. I noticed that he didn't want to play with me. He was stressed a lot. He was, he became subdued. He became, he just didn't become himself. And then from that age onwards, I would say from about eight or nine, a lot of my memories of my dad are with him with a drink in his hand. And then as I got to a teenager, and, and this is where it becomes really prevalent and it became really obvious that, I mean, what's normal, but I used to say, he's not normal, my dad's not normal. And I couldn't pinpoint as a teenager what that was. So it was little things that we'd have problems with, like going to events or any school events that we had. Like I remember going to an awards ceremony at school and I begged my dad just to act normal. I didn't realise that he was drunk and his attitude, I knew he had different attitudes and different personalities. And I just assumed my dad's mood would fluctuate. Didn't understand at 13 what that meant. So I would ask him to, dad, just please act normal. Just, just don't, don't embarrass me. And when I got to about 16, 17, or it might've even been older than that, that is when I really knew that it was the drink. I knew when he'd had a drink, I was piecing things together at that point. But it still didn't click that my dad was an alcoholic. Because it, I think, and this, and I think this is all part of the disease. I think the whole, he made me feel like I was being dramatic by worrying about that. He kind of invalidated that and justified it as, well, I don't smoke. I don't go to the pub. This is my way of relaxing. I'm allowed, a vi- I'm allowed vice. I'm allowed something to relax me. But it became, it became extremely bad when I was late teens, which is why I moved out. I didn't want to move out, but I moved out because I felt like I needed to get away from that environment. And it, it's important for me to say that my dad was never violent. He was never violent or he would never hurt anyone. But he was, he was very, he became very bitter and very maybe aggressive in his tone. And he would always be talking about his past and what he'd been through and how that made him feel. But even then at at 19, I didn't put two and two together. I didn't think that my dad had a mental illness. I thought that he was being weak. 
I thought that he was being selfish and I thought it was something that he could have snapped out of. So I moved out. My dad hit the peak of his addiction in my early 20s when I fell pregnant with my eldest daughter. And that is when I would say that would probably have been the worst time because it was things like he would spend most of his time on the sofa, passed out. He would be turning up to most events knowing I'd know that he'd had a drink. I could smell it on him. But he had a different look about him. His eyes were glazed. His face was red. And I, yeah, I... It's very, it's very difficult, actually, looking back at all of that. I feel I'm going off on a bit of a tangent. So you want me to describe what it was like living with him? It was, it was an amazing, you know what? Living with my dad was like an amazing whirlwind of when he was in a good mood. My goodness, it was amazing. I could talk to him for hours. I could have some real in-depth conversations. He was incredibly intelligent. He was incredibly loving. But then when he was drunk... It was, I didn't want to be around him. It was like a different person. And I I used to say to him, I love you, dad. I love you so much, but I also hate you. Mm. It was such a weird, weird, weird relationship. And and I, I look back at that and I think a lot of that was my lack of understanding. That was my lack of understanding about what he was going through, the lack of understanding about the disease and the lack of understanding about mental health. Because really we've only really recently just started talking about mental health and the repercussions that has on us. I never put two and two together. So growing up, yeah, it was a whirlwind. And I said a lot of stuff to him. I say, I said a lot of stuff that I regret. And I said a lot of stuff that I'm ashamed of myself for saying now. Things like I hated him, that swearing at him when I got so angry and frustrated. I was angry because I felt like he was choosing the drink over me. I felt like I used to say to him, why can't you just be sober? Why can't you just stop drinking for us? Aren't we enough? Aren't we enough for you to stop drinking? I would tell, and this is the worst thing I used to say to him. I'd say, dad, there are worse things out there. People are going through worse than you. That now, that that's the worst thing I could have said. That's the worst thing you can say to anybody. I was invalidating what he was going through. And I was making that cycle even worse because I weren't listening, I weren't understanding what he was going through. I didn't realise he had depression, I didn't realise he had anxiety, I didn't realise he had PTSD, and him drinking was to numb that emotional torment. So my lack of understanding, I would have said, contributed a lot to my relationship with my dad and my understanding of why he was drinking. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm really feeling emotional now because um, my son's 27. Steve was just short of 60, right? When he yeah, exactly a week, exactly seven days. And uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm 57. So I'm roughly your dad's age. And I do believe that if I carried on drinking, I would have gone exactly the same way. And how you're talking to me now is resonating with me because... I couldn't ever talk to my son George about it because of the incredible shame I felt as a man, as a human being, but as a father as well, because I felt like I, I was letting him down. I knew I was letting myself down, but above that was letting him down because I always wanted to be the role model for him. But I was hooked into the illness and the disease of alcoholism. And God, I mean, I remember once, right, we were watching something on the telly and I think I was pretending not to be drinking and I pretended to have a big glass of water and it was vodka. And now I look back, I think he was 15. He must have known. And and I cringe when I think about it. And 
luckily now he's proud of me that I'm sober. He's very proud of me. But what you just said there, like I was tingling inside with emotion because I could really hear your journey growing up there. So thank you for sharing that. No, not at all. You, you saying about hiding the drink. My, my dad used to do that. He'd hide the empty bottles and he would hide vodka in a drinks bottle masked as a soft drink. So, yeah, it, I, and I think that is part of the illness, isn't it? That That's just somebody said to me once that out that alcoholics are manipulative and deceitful. And I don't like those terms because I think that that's a really unfair description. I think I think that was them masquerading the shame. Mm. I think that's what my dad was doing. He, he didn't have the confidence to say, I've got a problem, I need help. Because there's so much shame projected onto it. And, and that is what I, I genuinely, sincerely believe that the shame attached to alcohol use disorder killed my dad. And I will go into that in a little bit more detail, but that, that is my belief. I think after he died and the reactions from people that I witnessed, the reactions of clinical care professionals, the reactions from family, friends, I genuinely believe the stigma attached to that disease is what killed my dad. And I understood it. I understood it when he died and it took a lot of therapy, a lot of trauma therapy for me to forgive myself for that because it was a disease that we ignored. And that is why I'm on this mission now. That's why I talk so openly because I think if one person, and I know this sounds really cliche, but if one person can be helped from what my dad went through, it means that he didn't die in vain. And I think that's what my dad would want something and he always used to say look on the bright side and I think that is the bright side isn't it his death going on to create something positive is the bright side so I want to I want to be able to give that or do that for him now because I couldn't do it when he was alive I want to do it now yeah and when I saw your TED talk it really resonated with me I was sitting in bed and you know I could really feel the emotion in your voice I thought it was fantastic and we connected after that didn't we and we had a phone call and and I thought you know what you're amazing and uh, <laughs> what you're doing is fantastic. And that's why I believe doing things like this, talking about it, gets the message out there. And uh, as you say, if it helps one person, I'm sure it'll help a lot more than that. It's a fantastic thing to do in honour of your dad, you know. So Thank you. you should be really proud of yourself. I'm sure Steve would as well. But it, it's um, interesting what you say about when you say he was really, really intelligent open about his feelings and that uh he sounds quite a lot like me you know what i'm really open but the shame about it, it is a conversation that i couldn't have either you know because especially hiding the bottles and i used to say to my wife okay i'm going to moderate this week and bring in one bottle but i'd already hidden another bottle it wasn't that i was being devious like you mentioned before it's because i needed it because yeah. one bottle between us wasn't enough for me yeah. it would be like torture I'd rather have none and just climb the walls you know and I'm sure a lot of people relate to that so I used to hide bottles drink them wake up feeling really really like why has this got me like it has why am I so out of control with my drinking all the self-blame that I felt about myself you know I lost my self-esteem my self-respect everything I felt useless I felt hooked into the disease and it was just something I couldn't 
have the conversation around, you know, because I felt so shamed. And, you know, I know you talk about the stigma of it, but that that's also part of your personal journey of how you feel. So when you get the stigma of what people see as an alcoholic, that just ramps it up tenfold, you know. So for your dad, I can just feel how I, what he must have been going through as well. And when you say to me, you know, why aren't we enough? You really were. Yeah. <laughs> really were. Yeah. Um, that that gets me emotional because hearing it from your perspective it's like listening to my dad yeah. because i i'm hearing it from somebody that's been in his shoes yeah. so that yeah that that does that does strike a chord i actually sat in in a one alanon meeting for families affected and i couldn't i couldn't do it again because it was like listening to my dad from varying perspectives and understanding the disease more and it, it just it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that people are shamed into remaining silent. They're shamed into remaining anonymous. But what really did it for me is so at the very end, and, and this is when it all kind of fell into place. So my dad had actually been sober for um, just over a year. He'd done really well. Now, I say he was shamed to get ashamed to get support, but what happened there is he turned up to a family holiday extremely drunk it was probably the worst I've ever seen him and he was that drunk that I took him home and said you know what dad you can't come with us on this because you're going to spend the whole week getting over this and it's going to ruin it the kids are there at that point you had two grandchildren the girls are going to be there and I don't want them around you being like that so I took him home to sleep it off. But even at that point, he was already showing signs of severe dependence, alcohol dependence. And I didn't realise. I just thought it's just the drink. He was coughing up blood. I was told that that is probably where he's coughing so hard. But it's, it's not. It, it's something it's to do with your internal organs. He was he was bloated. He was shaking. He was in pain. And I just thought he was coming off of a, a bad binge. But it, it was way more than that. So anyway, after the holiday, I said to my sisters, do not under any circumstances go and see dad. I said to my younger sister, come and live with me. We're going to give him an ultimatum now because I felt like I'd come to a point where what else can I do to help him? I tried. I felt like I tried everything. I, I, I hadn't. But looking back, I felt like I had. So I thought we're going to force him into this. We're going to force him into getting help. And what can we what can we use against my dad that we knew was his weakness and we knew my dad's weakness was his girls so me and my two sisters we knew that if we detached ourselves from him and we stopped seeing him then that could force him into getting help well it took three months I got a phone call off of him three months later crying and he said everything that I have been through is insignificant compared to losing my girls sorry and he said I'll do anything you want I'll anything you want I'll do it so I forced we forced him into getting help but that wasn't enough he had to want that for himself and I I know that now we kind of blackmailed him into doing it so Mm-hmm. He, and he did the bare minimal he he was physically dependent on alcohol at that point I sat in the room my dad signed all of his medical rights over to me as his eldest daughter I was allowed to discuss with his GP I was allowed to talk to um, the recovery nurses on his behalf he signed everything over to me and he did as I asked him to I was so proud of him so proud of him 
um, and he had, he had a diazepam detox because he was too he was too physically dependent on the drink. He couldn't have come off of it on his own because withdrawal is is deadly. Something I learned at that point after pouring all of his alcohol down the sink, which is ridiculous because. <laughs> I was just you, you just can't do that and people think you're helping but you can't but anyway he did that and he stayed on track for a while and he actually said to me you saved my life but what he didn't do and what we failed to realize is that you can't just have drugs to come off of the alcohol and then think that that's it it's done he's never going to drink again he he's now not an alcoholic we didn't understand it enough what he should have done after that and what he didn't do because of the shame was he should have remained on track speaking to somebody. He should have started taking an antidepressant to help him through the trauma, the depression, the anxiety. And he should have carried on with some kind of psychological treatment. And he didn't. And we thought, oh, no, he's fine. We've got our dad back. And I'm grateful for that 12 months because I did get my dad back. I got my dad back. When I said at the beginning of this podcast, I said about my dad when I was younger, when I was that little girl that was the dad I got and I remember I remember driving home one day I was so happy I thought oh I've got my dad and I felt this overwhelming surge of love for my dad and and I thought oh my god what would I do if anything would have ever happened to him how would I have lived well anyway we lost my granddad in March 2017 my dad's dad and after that was just he relapsed but this time because he'd had the diazepam detox, he was told that if he was to go back to it, then he would need something stronger for it to have an effect. Well, after my granddad died, I could sense the change in his personality and I had an inkling that he sounds drunk again because I could tell. He'd, he'd ring me and this is how in tune I was with him. He would ring me. He would have to say one sentence and I could tell. I could tell whether he'd been drinking just through the tone of his voice and he spiraled but this time he was doing what we know of a liter of vodka a day and it was it I think it got to a point of no return I'm going to talk you through the end and what happened and it's quite it's a traumatic here or or it'll be traumatic to listen to so just a heads up if you're happy for me to explain this yeah sure yeah so about one week before, um, one week before he died, he, I think he was, I think he became frightened. I think he knew something was untoward. I think that he got to a point because my dad was never one to share his medical or, or anything medical with us. He, he was a typical Yorkshire man. He was stubborn. He's not going to delve into details about what he's going through medically. And I had a phone call from him and he was crying. Again, that's that was a little bit um, out of character. He'd, 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 I'd listened to my dad cry before, but not that many times. And I, I knew at this point, I thought, okay, this isn't right. And he called me to tell me that he was coughing up blood. And I, I said, okay, well, I'm going to come up. I'm going to come and see you. And we're going to take you to hospital because this isn't right. And he was telling me that he was hallucinating. He was seeing his dad, um, which I believe now, I, I mean, I don't know what you're stances on this some people believe that that might have been his dad coming to collect him I genuinely believe that now I didn't at the time but I believe that and I I said dad you're hallucinating it's the drink you're hallucinating let's go and get you up to the hospital and let's let's go and get this sorted so I 
I got there and he was in bed. He was responsive, he was conscious, but I could see he was in a lot of pain. And I said, right, I'm going to call the ambulance because I think I, I think we need to get your liver checked. And he shouted at me. He said, he really shouted at me, he got angry. And I'd not seen him like that before. And it was almost like, you know, I told you about him making me feel like I was being dramatic. Well, um, he was making me feel dramatic again. And he said, there is nothing wrong with me. I am fine. If you call an ambulance, I'm not getting in it. I'm not going to the hospital. People are there that actually need support. They actually need help. I've done this to myself. This is my weakness. I'll overcome it myself. Um, And we had a massive argument. And in the end, I walked away and I said, you know what, Dad, I can't watch you do this to yourself if you're not going to let me help you. Then I walked away again, blissfully unaware. I was absolutely blissfully unaware of what was happening. Um, so I, but I did ring his GP and she told me it was all normal. <laughs> it's all part of coming off the alcohol. It's, all, it's, it's what happens. But then we got another phone call saying that, well, actually, I've been going over his notes. I think you do need to get him up to hospital. And um, so he kind of gave us this ultimatum. He said, if I'm still this bad after the weekend, then I'll go. So I got a phone call one day from my sister. I was driving to work and she called. And the really weird thing before this, 10 minutes before I had that phone call, I had this epiphany that I was reading his eulogy at a funeral, which randomly came into my head out of nowhere. I had this weird feeling that just surged all over me. And I was reading this eulogy and I was in the crematorium and it was my dad's funeral. Then I get a phone call off my sister and I could hear it as soon as I picked up the phone. And she just said, you need to get to hospital, dad's in a bad way. At that point, I didn't even go to the hospital. I turned around because my foot was just shaking on the pedal and I knew that I went in a fit state to drive. So I went and got my husband and we got to the hospital and he was sitting up in this wheelchair and he, and I saw him and I thought, oh, great, he's not unconscious, he's fine. He's, he's awake, that's brilliant. But what had already happened at that point is that I think they call it wet brain, that had already kicked in and he didn't recognise me. And I gave him a cuddle and I said, oh, look, we're going to get you better, dad. And he just looked at me and he went, I need my car keys. I need to go and see if my girls are all right. <laughs> and I knew at that point, I thought, oh, God, this is bad. Like, he's in a bad way. And he looked, he looked different. This time the redness had gone, but there was a white, yellowish clamminess to him. And then there were stages within that hospital visit. So he got moved into majors. And then from majors, he got moved into resus. And then in resus, we had two surgeons so you never have two surgeons or two consultants that come and see you and they're showing me pictures of his lung x-ray and by this point where his liver went filtering through the blood properly a lot of fluid was accumulating and it had gotten into his lungs Um, and they showed me pictures of his lungs again it weren't computing that this was serious I just thought okay we'll get him we'll get him detoxed again like we did last time and it'll be fine and then we'll really get him the help so then he went from resus into a ward and within a few hours of being in a ward, he went into intensive care. And it still, at that point, did not compute to me. And in intensive care, he was on dialysis. He had his own nurse and the doctors. And it was just, it, it was going from intensity to intensity to intensity. And then I went to visit him. And as we, I walked into intensive care, the, the curtains were closed and my mum, because um, even though my mum and dad were separated, my mum was still amazing in the fact that she really, she really did care for my dad 
really cared for him and she was there and she, and she got a phone call because she was still listed as his next of kin with the hospital and we just looked at each other and we knew we knew what was coming and then the doctor came in and he had that conversation with us and he started reeling off all of this stuff that was wrong with him and I just stopped him midway and I said is my dad going to survive this and he just looked at me and you could see this tired defeated looking surgeon and he said he's got a 10% chance of surviving that's if he doesn't die while I'm putting him um, onto a life support machine at that point I walked out I walked out of the room I said I can't listen to you anymore and I went to see my dad and I everything around me just closed in and I went into shock I nearly, I nearly passed out because what you've got to remember is for me at that point I wasn't just dealing with the grief of my god this is very real I could lose my dad but I was also dealing with the oh my god what have I done the guilt was all consuming and the pain the it physically hurt like not just emotionally, it physically hurt me. And bearing in mind as well, I had issues at that point with really bad anxiety and OCD as a consequence of my dad's drinking because I couldn't control that. So it all kind of came out or manifested within myself. So I knew at that point, I knew when I everything went black around me, my vision went tunnelled. And I thought, Sarah, my goodness, you need to really really control yourself because you're either going to sink or swim now like this is going to be the make or break of you and from somewhere I found this strength within to just pick myself up and go do you know what we're going to deal with this and we're going to own this and we're going to get through this and it's going to be fine so I kind of just became this like the the big sister the older daughter I saw everybody around me crumbling and I knew that I had to keep it together So I held his hand. I told him everything I needed to tell him. I said what I needed to say. I told him at that point, I said, you know what, Dad, this weren't your fault. I get that. I understand that. I thanked him for instilling independence because that was going to be something that I needed at that point. And I held his hand as we switched him off because there was no coming back. It was his liver was just completely it was completely gone. And if by a miracle there was a chance that he would have survived that, he wouldn't have been right. So we switched him off and it was at that point I knew or I felt that stigma because that awkward look when you had to tell somebody how he died, the awkward look they'd give when you tell them how. Um, it became that awkward sometimes that I sometimes lied to people that I, who I knew would stereotype. So I told them, oh, we had a heart attack. I look back at that now and think, well, why did you do that? Why, why did you say that? There, was, there should be no shame. There should be no shame. I should have said he had a disease. He was let down by society stereotype. He had a disease. I had people tell me that he did it to himself. It was his own fault and he only had himself to blame. So once I got over the grief or the guilt even first, I had to get over the guilt first, then I got over the grief and then it was the anger because I was angry that people were telling me that it was my dad's fault. And then I did research into it and it was very thankful for um, a close family friend of ours, Dr. Jim. And he sat me down and he explained to me about alcoholism, told me that it's a disease, something that it's very difficult to get control over. He told me that quite often it's a terminal disease because you can never, ever just stop drinking without clinical help. You will always need that help to get you off of the alcohol and you'll always need that help to keep you off 
the drink and I never understood that but after he died I did I, I learned more about it um where am I going with this so the stigma then really came to light and I had arguments with people and, I, and I'll always remember it I don't know how to say this without it sounding like I'm being let's just say this person was very unhealthy within themselves and this person told me that alcoholics should have their NHS rights taken away from them because it's their own fault and I sat there and I turned around I'm quite a witty person and I very I very quickly and very quite aggressively turned around and went oh does that logic apply to obesity and they just they I I must have struck a chord because it didn't go down very well but that's when I started thinking well hang on a minute all of these people are telling me that oh your dad did it to himself type 2 diabetes is caused by what we eat 90% of lung cancers are caused by smoking. 80%, I think it's, don't quote me on this because I'm not quite sure, but I think it's 80% of diseases are environmental. So it's what we do to ourselves. It's what we consume, it's what we drink, and it's what we put onto our bodies and into our bodies. That's a massive proportion of disease. 80% of coronary heart disease is caused by what you eat. So then I started piecing things together and thought all those looks that I had in A&E, because I didn't mention this, but we had looks from paramedics rolling their eyes, tutting and shaking their heads at my dad. And I thought the majority of those people sitting in there with chest pain, by the way, I do not mean this of any judgment at all. I'm just saying it as a comparison. But most of those people are, are sitting there probably going in with chest pain because of diet related illnesses. And they get sympathy and rightly so they should get sympathy anybody should get sympathy when it comes to having a disease but my dad the alcoholic had head shakes eyeball rolls and tutting and just to put this into perspective I wasn't imagining that because last year I actually witnessed a young man he must have been no older than 20 but he was stumbling in the middle of the road he had a bottle of vodka and he was pouring it neat when I say pouring it I mean his head was tilted right back and he was pouring that bottle down his throat not one person stopped several people stood outside their driveway shaking their heads Mm. and saying to me fancy drinking at this time of the day I was at that point I thought I looked at this man and I went, you don't know what he's been through. You don't know what has led him to that. So I, I called 999 and I, I called in and I said, look, th- this young man needs, he needs help. And they sent somebody out and they helped him, thankfully. But it was at that point I thought, there it is. There's the stigma. There's the shame. Because if that young man was having an asthma attack caused by smoking, let's say, or he had... Um, some kind of other illness which was caused by his diet or his lifestyle choice then they'd go and help he'd have that sympathy and it was at that point I thought there is a real discrepancy here between alcoholics Mm. bearing in mind cigarettes are covered with a screen there's graphic warning labels attached on them you can go into a pharmacy and you can see bunting across the pharmacy will stop smoking and you can get funding to stop smoking and people will quite happily admit to that they need help they need a nicotine patch that's an addiction Mm. there's no shame attached to it whereas you can't go in you you go into a supermarket and alcohol is advertised it's in your face Mm. it's everywhere you go if you go to a party and you're not drinking oh are you pregnant are you the designated driver are you a recovering alcoholic or are you just boring like this does that kind of, I think we spoke about it before the podcast about sober shaming. It's the only drug that you are shamed for not doing, mm. but you're also shamed if you get sucked in 
to the euphoric side effects and you become addicted. And then you're in this cycle of which you're caught between a rock and a hard place because alcohol is one of the few substances where you become physically dependent to, which means you cannot stop drinking without help. You need medical help. You need you need to be detoxed under medical guidance. You need a GP. You need you need a team of clinicians around you. If you don't feel confident or you don't have that family there supporting you or empowering you to recovery, then you have to carry on drinking. And all the time that's happening, you're in a vicious circle. And I said in my talk, for most of people that are in that cycle, it's easier for them to carry on drinking than it is to access support and say they need help because of the shame and the stigma attached to it. And my TED talk has brought something to light. I cannot emphasize the amount of people that have come forward to me saying that I felt like your dad did. That's why I didn't get support or that happened to my parent. They felt ashamed. They felt the stigma and they didn't have the confidence. And I, now I am just, you know, now it, I am incredibly passionate about educating society because I think that's what it is it's an education Mm. thing it's an awareness thing when I explain to people about this different perspective and I get very surprised a lot of people go oh I never thought about it that way and that surprises me do you know what it's uh what's interesting as well is that um I mean I I was like your dad I drank a litre of vodka for a night for years so it's really lucky I'm still here incredibly yeah, but, yeah. Um, not everyone reaches a rock bottom uh, they need medical detox there are people that don't drink every day there are people that dress drink a couple of glasses of wine a day but it affects their life it affects their mental health and their anxiety and um, they often say to people you know I'm gonna have a break off alcohol and they their friends say, there's nothing wrong with you. What, what, what are you talking about, you know? And I always say the amount isn't really as much the issue. It's how it affects your life, Yeah. you know? And there are many, many grey era drinkers out there that they struggle every day with um, the fact they think about it every day and they think, do you know what? I'm going to really try hard not to drink today. And then something happens like, you know, a horrible email or something at work and you think, oh, do you know what? Sod it, I'll have a drink tonight. And then I'll start again tomorrow and that drink turns to a bottle of wine or something. So it's a broad scale of individuals out there that have got their own relationship with alcohol and and it affects them in so many ways and there's sober shaming the stigma around it is awful and I think how you've talked on this podcast is beautiful I'm literally honestly I'm feel so emotional because I I think you should be so proud of yourself and um, I I really want to support you with getting the message out there oh thank you so much and and I think yeah I, I, I think it must be hard for you as well in a way because I'm your dad's age as well. So seeing someone in front of you that's talking to you about my journey as well and how I managed to stop and turn things around must in some way be a little bit difficult for you. Do you know what? It isn't, it isn't. It, it is in the, in the fact that why couldn't we get my dad to that point? But equally, he had to want to do that for himself. And I, I understand that. And, and that's a large proportion of it. He needed to do that but also at that point I I even think what it's nearly four years now since we lost my dad I think we've come a long way since then I know it's not a long time back in 2017 mental health was probably just coming to light I didn't have the confidence back in 2017 to open up about my own mental health until my dad died 
So I think that it's it's come a long way. And I think if it would have happened to my dad now, then there would have been more resources in place. There would have been more awareness. There would have been more inspirational accounts like yourself on Instagram talking openly about what they're going through. But there wasn't back then. And I think that is the key. And I think watching you and how you've come out and what you're doing, that's inspirational. And that gives me hope to think that someone doesn't have to go through what I've had or not as many people have to go through what I went through as that daughter watching watching someone you love watching them slowly kill themselves but feeling helpless because mm. you do you literally feel as a loved one especially at the end with my dad I felt like I'd hit a brick wall and I felt like I was bashing my head against it and I said that my mum and dad were separated and I rung my mum and I said I don't know what else to do mum I'm stuck I feel like this is it this is the end what what do we do how do we get him out of this? I was hoping he'd have a stint in intensive care and come round and have the shake-up he needed. And I was hoping that he'd go, oh my goodness, that nearly killed me. And he'd be really thankful. And I was thinking, yeah, that will happen. And and maybe he'll then count his lucky stars and think, right, that's it. That nearly killed me. Mm. But it didn't. And if now we can use his story to empower people to recovery, not shaming them, not shaming them into staying silent, not shaming them into being anonymous, giving them the encouragement and the confidence to recover openly, freely, without judgment, without stereotype. It's just like any other disease. Alcohol is a legal substance. It is in your face. It is everywhere. We shouldn't feel ashamed if we want to stop drinking. It's just, it's ludicrous, isn't it? It's absolutely ludicrous that we're still doing that. we're in this day and age and we are still shaming people mm. into silence and anonymity. I think it's I think it's crazy. So actually seeing people like yourself gives me hope. It makes me think, yeah, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you, Sarah. So before we finish, I'd really, really love to talk about what you're doing now and for the future. Thank you for asking. Um, I So I said earlier on about how I knew that I would sink or swim and I found the strength within to turn a negative into a positive so I set up my own charitable organization called Warrior Kind where we are on a mission to normalize conversations around our mental health normalizing those conversations where we talk about things we've been through and we and we talk about the triumphs over adversity and we talk about them in a liberating and empowering way. And um, so we're offering training, we're offering video documentaries, content, features on the website featuring lived experience. We're all about lived experience at Warrior Kind. But personally, and our TED Talk was a big thing, a big part of this is I'm personally and with Warrior Kind, we'll be quashing that stigma. We'll be working on breaking down those barriers and that stigma around alcohol use disorder but we'll be doing it with lived experience but also educational content and I think that is the key it's getting into schools isn't it it's it's getting into people while they're still young and explaining and into the general population and raising awareness with through campaigns and content online with video content talking to people like yourself talking about your experience what you've been through and inspiring other people to know that there's light at the end of the tunnel like it doesn't have to define you it can be the making of you it it can it can be empowering I certainly and I know this sounds very contradicting because I of how emotional I was throughout this podcast but just to finish this with I am thankful to my dad every day because I genuinely think that he saved me 
because and I'll say why he saved me because I felt after he died I found the confidence and the courage to seek out treatment for my own mental health and he saved me and I think he's put me on this different track this different path to use an experience that was traumatic in our lives to help other people and I think that is a gift within itself that I know that if he knew that would have been a repercussion of his death, I think he'd have died 10 times over. Oh, my God. I I can just feel that so much, you know. And I was going to say to you as well that this is your recovery from what you've experienced as well. And and for what you've created with Warrior Kind, you're going on to help other people. And a bit like myself, you know, that helps me so much when – I see results of people message me and they say, do you know what? You you probably don't remember, but you messaged me two years ago and we had a little interaction and that was enough to stop me drinking. And I'm now celebrating two years of sobriety and wow. uh, things like that, you know, and it is so empowering. And I myself, uh, I think it's in October, I'm going into a school college and I'm going to talk in front of a group of 16 to 18 year olds about my story, about my addiction uh, in the hope that that helped them as well. And it's people like yourself that are getting the message out there, raising awareness that can help to prevent things like um, your dad's death happening. And I, I just, I'm so grateful for you sharing your experience with us on this podcast. And I said it before, your, your dad, Steve, will be so super proud of you. You should be proud of yourself. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the space to be able to talk honestly it's been amazing uh, i'll put all your details on the show notes um links and etc and i'm sure we'll meet soon let's carry on working together i'd love that amazing yeah me too definitely thank you so much sarah thank you for joining no, thank you dave have a lovely day you too take care bye bye i hope you enjoyed today's episode Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at SoberDave or drop me an email at info at davidwilsoncoaching.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week. Take care.